Dandry Leyland. My heroes have always been cowboys. The romantic notion of the cowboy, that is. Tall in the saddle, riding the wide open plains, dusty boots, long coat, six guns strapped to his thigh. An honourable man, but a man who marches to the beat of his own drum. Even tempered, a keen gambler, just as willing to talk his way out of a problem than to be involved in a gunfight, but on those occasions where it's called for, quick to enact swift justice. Now, this notion, I'm first to admit, bears little resemblance to reality. But it's that ideal of the cowboy, the man who may not necessarily perform acts on the right side of legal, but with a heart of gold and a strong sense of right and wrong, that's what I respond to. I love Yul Brynner in The Magnificent Seven, ultra cool and a man of very few words. I adored Clint Eastwood in many of his cowboy roles, but the outlaw Josie Wales is the one that resonates the most. I loved Back to the Future 3 as it's a western, and even when they aren't cowboys, some of my favourite characters definitely owe a little something to the westerns of yesteryear. Captain Kirk, Han Solo and the A-Team are all cowboys, just removed in time. The comic book Preacher is a western, just with a modern-day sensibility. My favourite character currently on television, Raylan Givens in Justified, is a man born 100 years too late. So yes, you could say that my heroes have always been cowboys. And apparently, they still are today. ITV4 recently started a repeat showing of the early 1970s western Alias Smith and Jones. Upon discovering it in the listed, I was elated. I really dug this show as a kid. It should come as no surprise, it certainly didn't to my wife after having viewed a few episodes, that I still do. It has many of the hallmarks I look for in my entertainment. The lead characters aren't necessarily angels, but they ain't of the devil either. They are funny, likeable and charismatic, but with a darker edge. They have a code and they don't break it, but they recognise that the world around them is corrupt and cruel, so they have each other's backs. This is best summed up to me in the pilot episode of Starsky and Hutch, when Starsky, upon learning the corruption they are investigating, goes all the way to the top, asks his partner, Then who do we trust? Hutch replies, The same people we always trust. Me and thee. This attitude permeates Alias Smith and Jones, and the series is best summed up in its opening credit sequence. Hannibal Hayes and Kid Curry, the two most successful outlaws in the history of the West. And in all the trains and banks they robbed, they never shot anyone. This made our two latter-day Robin Hoods very popular with everyone but the railroads and the banks. There's one thing we gotta get, Hayes. What's that? Out of this business. The governor can't come flat out and give you amnesty now. First, you gotta prove you deserve it. So all we've gotta do is stay out of trouble until the governor figures we deserve amnesty. But in the meantime, we'll still be wanted. Well, that's true. Till then, only you, me, and the governor will know about it. It'll be our secret. (laughs) That's a good deal. Alias Smith and Jones, starring Pete Duell and Ben Murphy. These credits are so much of the time they can practically be carbon dated. The series setup, explained every week so people can tune in without much foreknowledge, is now very outdated, as is the almost storybook narration setting up the plot for each show. 
As explained in the opening, our central protagonists are Hannibal Hayes and Jebediah Kid Curry, although Hayes will only ever be referred to as Hannibal once in the show's 50-episode run, and the kid's first name will only be mentioned twice. The pilot episode, a 75-minute TV movie, goes into further details and fleshes out the backstory. I hadn't seen Alias Smith and Jones for many years prior to this rebroadcast, but I was delighted to see that the pilot held up exceptionally well. More comedic than the series that followed, although the series itself cannot be in any way described as grim, this telefilm shows our heroes realising that safes are becoming more and more difficult to crack, and upon learning that the governor will extend amnesty to them if they can stay out of trouble, they leap at the chance. The show owes a huge debt to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and it will therefore come as no surprise to see Glenn A. Larson's name in the credits as creator and producer. Larson, nicknamed Glenn Larsony by Harlan Ellison, never met a film he couldn't turn into a TV series, and I was initially worried upon watching the pilot when I discovered that he was involved. See, whilst Larson's work was a staple of my TV childhood, it's fair to say he was a man more interested in the high concept and the plot-driven story than of characterisation. However, the day-to-day running of the series and many of the show's episodes would be handled by Roy Huggins, creator of Maverick and the Rockford Files, and a lot of the production personnel and writers would go on to work for Stephen J. Cannell, a man who strongly favours good characters. This put the series in good stead, and as we go along, Huggins will build up a steady stream of supporting characters that return to bedevil our heroes, a level of character continuity pretty much unheard of at the time, and something I always appreciate in a show. Hayes and Curry's outlaw band, the Devil's Hole Gang, will have semi-recurring roles throughout the series, with Dennis Fimple and Earl Holliman as Kyle and Wheat respectively showing up a few times, as will J.D. Cannon as P.I. Harry Briscoe, Sally Field as Clementine Hale, Michelle Lee as Georgina Hale, Bert Ives as Big Mac McCready, Rudy Valley as Winford Fletcher, and, in a lovely nod to the past, the rifleman himself, James Drury, as Lom Travers, the man who suggests the deal to Curry and Hayes, and who supplies them with their aliases, Joshua Smith for Hayes, and Thaddeus Jones for Curry. Despite a smorgasbord of guest talent showing up, actors like Mark Leonard, Jane Wyatt, Patrick McNee, Cesar Romero, William Wyndham, Diana Muldaur, Lou Gossett, Richard Anderson and Lee Majors, the series rests and falls on the charisma and charm of the leads, Pete Doole and Ben Murphy. Both men are perfect in their roles. Initially portrayed as good and loyal friends, one gets a big brother, little brother vibe off Hayes and Curry, although in the episode The Men Who Broke the Bank at Red Gap, Hayes calls Curry his cousin. Whatever the relationship, this was one of television's first bromances, to use a cliché, but it is ably performed by both as they hit the ground running in terms of tone. Hayes is the con man. He never met a safe he couldn't crack, never met a deck of cards he couldn't tell was weighted or light a few cards just by holding them, and never met a woman he couldn't charm. Hayes would always rather talk himself out of trouble than draw his gun, but he's always on the lookout for his younger partner. Duel oozes charisma as Hayes, silver-tongued and charming. He's the cool one, the one we all wanted to be. Curry is the hothead and the quickest draw ever seen. He's not a man who likes violence, and the sheer speed with which his gun clears his holster is normally enough to warn any sane man off, but Curry is the one most likely to be led astray by Hayes. He's also the one most likely to ditch the deal and run off to Mexico where they aren't wanted. 
Ben Murphy is a perfect counterpoint to Pete Duell. Whereas Duell is slightly older looking with a face that screams, I've lived, Murphy was baby faced with blue eyes. This casting is perfect as the guy looks like he's just out of swaddling clothes, so the fact that he could clear his gun before you've even decided to draw made for an interesting contrast. The series has its continuity problems as well, though. The governor says they only have to ride along for a year without getting into trouble, but the series runs for three, and based upon dates given in the show, the outlaws are running for nearly seven years. Irrespective, the series builds its characters well with recurring beats and motifs. Whenever Curry draws his gun, this effect is achieved by not showing it happen. In one shot, the kid's hand just resides at the side of the holster, ready to pounce. In the next, like that, the gun's in his hand and pointed at the man in front. It's a simple effect, but one that is incredibly effective, and I enjoyed it every time they did it. Whenever Curry also sees an injustice being performed towards a woman, his chivalrous side emerges, an honourable trait, but one that gets him into trouble more often than not. Hayes always approaches these situations the same way. He tries to diffuse it with talk, but more often than not, rolls his eyes and simply gets out of the way. It's a neat character bit from Duel that this became a recurring gag. Another recurring gag that was whenever the boys would ride into a new town, invariably at the start of most episodes, they were covered in dust, in particular Hayes' black cowboy hat. The show was a light-hearted comedy western, so it shied away from violent gunfights, but there was plenty of action and some actually quite neat plotting and humour. The first season doesn't really have a bad episode. Debuting as a mid-season replacement in January of 1971, the first 15 episode season was solid and entertaining. Exit from Wickenburg has the boys helping a widow run a saloon. Wrong train to Brimstone has them inadvertently board a train full of private detectives from the Bannerman Detective Agency. Out to nail Hayes and Curry and the Devil Hole Gang once and for all. One of the best of the season, A Fistful of Diamonds, sees the duo framed for a robbery and murder, which they have to clear themselves of or the amnesty is off. Each episode involves a staple of otters of the time, a stagecoach robbery, a poker game, a femme fatale, a damsel in distress, a framing, horse riding and gunplay, but there's a knowing wink to it all that makes it palatable. It also stands up remarkably well. The dialogue still seems crisp and natural and the plots do often take a few interesting turns. Hayes is a direct descendant of Brett Maverick, and Curry is every kind-hearted outlaw you've ever seen, but the actors make these clichés work. Of course, it's far from a real depiction of the West, but it's not completely sanitised either. Hayes and Curry are regularly dirty, forced to live under the stars due to their lack of money, and are easily swayed by the lure of a quick and easy paycheck. It does make one wonder quite often what exactly Hayes and Curry did with all that money they stole from the banks and the railroads. By all accounts, Hannibal Hayes is a completely fictionalised character, but the real Jebediah Kid Curry was in no way as amiable as his on-screen counterpart. As the series progressed, all seemed well. The show was a hit, the leads were suddenly inundated with female followers, and it was travelling well, be one of those shows that seemed to be more popular here in the UK than even in the States, largely due to the photogenic leads. However, behind the scenes, trouble was brewing. Pete Duell had a long history of depression and alcohol dependency and was starting to tire of the same old, same old routine of a weekly series. Viewers would never know it from watching the series, though, as the chemistry between he and Ben Murphy was as on point as ever in the second season opener, a 75-minute TV movie called The Day They Hanged Kid Curry. 
There are a number of standout shows in season two as the series started being more adventurous. Smiler with a Gun is probably my favourite of the run. Roger Davis, who provided the opening narration for the series, and was a friend of Dool's from a previous project, plays Danny Bilson, who, along with Hayes and Curry, takes a gig on a gold mine found by an elderly prospector called Seth. Bilson, who is always happy and smiling, betrays the team, steals the gold, and leaves the three men horseless and waterless to die in the middle of the desert. Hayes and Curry are determined to get their money back, but as the journey through the hot desert sun becomes too much for Seth, our heroes decide that Bilson should pay in more ways than one. This scene where the old-timer dies is one of the most affecting of the series' run. Essentially, Hayes and Curry fail in this moment, as the man they swore to get to safety dies in their arms, and it is beautifully acted by both Dool and Murphy. Hayes, ever the pragmatist, is more concerned with their own survival, but Curry demands that they bury Seth, and then sets about to avenge him. They find Bilson many weeks later in a saloon he has bought with the money. After a tense standoff, Bilson says he can't pay them all, as the money is tied up in the saloon, but Hayes says they'll tell the sheriff where all this money came from and at what price. Bilson calls Hayes' bluff, but they give him a few days to pay up. In the meantime, Bilson guns a man down in the street who accuses him of cheating, and Bilson may be as quick on the drawer as Kid Curry. When asked, the sheriff says, as far as he's concerned, no law has been broken, as Bilson clearly acted in self-defence. Growing more and more agitated, Hayes goes to Bilson, who says he will not pay, and there's not a damn thing they can do about it. See... The reason you won't go to the sheriff, says Bilson, is I've figured out that you ain't Smith and Jones. You're Hannibal Hayes and Kit Curry. Hayes is prepared to take the pittance Bilson is offering to leave and keep quiet, admitting to the kid earlier in the episode that they are beaten. But when Bilson meets with Hayes, he demands the kid meet with him also, so that he can gloat. Hayes says better to leave well enough alone. This is another magnificently acted scene with Hayes unwilling to look Bilson in the eye as he tries to maintain control of his anger, and Davis is gloriously slimy. Bilson can't let it go, though, and he goes outside where the kid and Hayes are packing up their horses to leave. The kid ignores Bilson until he calls him out about Seth, and the kid waits until Bilson draws before shooting him dead. Curry looks at the sheriff and says, He drew first, and the duo leave town. This tale of moral ambiguity and acceptance is exceptionally well made, acted and written. Kid Curry clearly manipulates Bilson into drawing first, and Hayes goes along with it, although one can argue the final choice is Bilson's, who can't help rubbing their faces in his victory. Hayes is more broken in this show than in any other. Bilson wins, it's clear-cut. He outcons Hannibal Hayes, and there's nothing they can do about it. But what really galls them is Seth's death will go unavenged. Hayes is willing to let it go, though. As a gambler, he knows when the hand is a loser. But Kid Curry cannot let it go, and it's a character trait we'll see again as the series goes on. It's also the only man Curry kills in the history of the show, and he changes his physical appearance, adopting a moustache for a few episodes, to signify that he's a different man. Another standout in the second season is The Bounty Hunter, in which Lou Gossett plays Joe Sims, a man hunting Hayes and Curry for the $20,000 reward they have on their head. Gossett is magnificent in this tale of racism in the Old West, but what makes it stand out is that despite being saved by Hayes and Curry, he's still going to turn them in. The ending is tragic, as you would expect, with a rancher shooting Sims in the back and Hayes and Curry burying him. Its ambiguity and strong subject matter make this one of the better episodes of the show's run. Lee Majors shows up as Briggs, a town bully in the McCready bust, Going, Going, Gone, another great episode. 
Hayes and Curry are hired by MacReady to retrieve a bust of Caesar, seen in the first season, but it involves hanging around a small town for a few days. Majors plays an utter scumbag, a paranoid town asshole who keeps the peasants in line so they don't vote the current political incumbent out of office. When Curry refuses to take off his gun, Briggs makes him do a jig, which Curry reluctantly does to keep the peace. After this situation is repeated once more, Curry is rapidly tiring of this situation, but he inadvertently allows an alcoholic pastor, played by Bradford Dillman, to find his faith again when confronted by this extraordinary example of turning the other cheek, especially as the pastor can clearly see that Curry isn't afraid of Briggs at all. However, when the duo finally retrieve the bust and are preparing to leave town, Briggs won't let it lie and demands Curry jig one more time. In one of the tensest scenes in the show, Curry, aware that the pastor is watching, tries to keep the peace. Hayes, knowing his partner's short fuse, even says, do it for him, referring to the pastor, but Briggs simply can't let it go, and Curry is forced into a quick draw. This episode is a great examination of faith, and Curry's heated exchange with the pastor afterwards, where he says that maybe we need people like you because of people like me, is one of Murphy's best scenes. To be fair, Briggs deserved it. He's a complete asshole, and taking him down a peg or two in his own town was as satisfying a moment as I've seen on TV this year. Quite a sad state of affairs when you consider this episode is over 40 years old. Sadly, Dool's personal problems had started to overwhelm him. Whilst Hayes was carefree and happy, traits Dool found admirable, he did not share them. He was concerned about the world, the environment, the misuse of power, and felt he needed to do something other than appear in a silly TV show. He was bothered his acting career wasn't going how he envisioned, and fell off the wagon. He received a ban from driving after being found over the limit, but was seemingly in good spirits over the Christmas of 1971. A career setback had found him rejected from a position in the Screen Actors Guild, and Duell framed it, hung it up in his house, and shot at it. But friends recalled he seemed in good spirits over the holiday. In the early morning of December 31st, 1971, Duell retrieved his pistol from the bedroom. He'd been drinking heavily. According to the coroner, he placed the gun to his temple and fired, killing himself instantly. The bullet was found across the road in a neighbour's carport. What caused this man with seemingly a rising career and an awful lot to live for to kill himself is a question his family and friends have been asking for over 40 years It wasn't premeditated, there was no note, and he'd already arranged to be picked up in the morning for that day's filming. His depression had finally overwhelmed him. Pete Dool was only 31 years of age. All involved were stunned. Joe Swirling Jr., associate producer, wanted to end the show there and then. In one of the crassest moves ever made by a major television network, ABC threatened to sue Universal Pictures if they did not hold up their end of the deal and deliver the five more contracted episodes for the season. With this in mind, the decision was made to continue filming, and whilst one does have to take into consideration the crew who relied on this show for their livelihood, it still seems remarkably insensitive to carry on without any break. Duell had already completed filming four further unheard episodes at the time of his death, and partially completed a fifth, the biggest game in the West. The decision was made to reshoot the portions of this show already made, and completed with another actor in the role of Hannibal Hayes. In many ways, this may not have been the best move. 
If the writers had concocted a story where Hayes had been kidnapped or gone missing, maybe through the use of stock footage of Dool, and then simply had Curry investigate Hayes' disappearance for four episodes, before finding him in the fifth, possibly utilising Dool's footage from his last show, I think the reaction may have been more favourable. However, hindsight is twenty twenty. Cameras continue to roll on alias Smith & Jones a mere 12 hours after Pete Dool's death. Ben Murphy was given the day off as filming continued with guest actors. Roger Davis, who had played Danny Bilson in Smiler with a Gun, was drafted in to replace Duel, and his first job was to reshoot all the scenes from Duel's last show that had already been completed. It can't have been easy for Davis to replace his friend so suddenly, and the results are mixed. As someone who gravitated more towards Hayes than to Curry, it's difficult for me to watch this episode. It's not that Davis's first episode or his performance in it is bad, but it's a very haze-heavy show, and one is left watching it thinking how sad it is that it isn't Pete Dool. There's also the constant reminder that this is an Earth 2 Hannibal Hayes, from the wanted posters that clearly still bear Dool's description, Roger Davis doesn't have brown eyes for one, to the clumsily edited new opening credits that still feature Dool in two shots. The crew, in a daze, completed the second season. Ben Murphy recalls being on autopilot for the remainder of the year, and no one thought ABC would renew it for a third, so critically lambasted had they been for carrying on at all. Yet renew they did. The third season only lasted 12 episodes, the shadow of Pete Duell being too great for Roger Davis to ever truly step out of. It's a tragedy that Pete Duell killed himself, but the true tragedy is that depression is still looked upon as somehow a lesser illness. I have to confess, I don't understand it at all. But my wife, through her job, is exposed to a number of people who suffer from clinical depression, and she's managed to at least try to explain to me what these people go through. Sometimes, as with Duel, there's even a feeling that, with depression, it's just a matter of time before tragedy occurs. I don't believe that, and I implore anyone with this illness to find somebody to talk to, and, more importantly, find someone that will listen. Despite Duel's tragic death casting a huge shadow over the show, alias Smith & Jones is one of the last of TV's successful westerns. It has great characters, good storylines, and some truly magnificent guest appearances. It wonderfully walks that line between comedy, drama, action and adventure, and most of the episodes are, at the very least, diverting and entertaining. It's burly dated with the incidental music and theme, a wonderfully catchy number by Billy Goldenberg, all having more of a southern hoedown feel, adding to the overall timelessness of the show. Duel and Murphy were a magnificent team together, an effortless on-screen partnership that Murphy described as luck, grounding the show no matter the predicament. It's a shame that Duel couldn't see what I saw in this silly, frivolous, affecting and entertaining show, and we should remember his and Ben Murphy's part in bringing to life this fun story of two pretty good bad men. Thank you.